Amen. As you know, the elders have designated that today is a day of prayer for our church, and we are calling on all the members of this particular church to earnestly seek God in prayer throughout the day today. There are a number of reasons why we are calling our church to pray. These are obvious to many of us, but I'm going to repeat them. As a church, we are, as Christians, desperately in need of God. In John 15, 5, Jesus reminds his disciples of our inability to bring about fruit apart from him. He says in John 15, apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. On another occasion, Jesus reminded one of his listeners that God seeks worshipers. He desires people to worship him, to bring and, and bring before him their praise and their prayers. And we're also to pray because Jesus urged his followers to continually offer our requests to him. Matthew 7 says, keep on asking and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. We know that Jesus Christ himself spent time regularly and consistently in prayer. And we also know that the early believers in the record of their early life together in the book of Acts was characterized by prayer among them. And so in urging our church family to devote ourselves to prayer, particularly today and then throughout the week, I'm aware that for some of us, I'm just being honest, but for some of us, the thought of spending more time in prayer is sort of like the thought of flossing our teeth. It's something we know that we ought to do. We're constantly reminded it's good for you if you'll do this. We're told it's essential and helpful and necessary and beneficial if you will just floss your teeth more often. But for some of us, just like flossing our teeth, prayer can become somewhat burdensome as an obligation. Oh, I need to pray. It is for this reason, then, that I think we all can say as well, when we talk about prayer, some of us react by saying, well, yeah, of all the areas of my spiritual life, this is one of them, i got to admit, I have a long ways to go and a big area of growth for me. So this morning, I know, having, knowing that that's the kind of things that are going on in our heads and our hearts, I can identify with all of those things, I'd like to direct your attention to a passage here in Hebrews 4, which is why we picked this out for our memory verse this month, knowing this is where we were going. Hebrews chapter 4, page 1423 in your pew Bible. And my, my desire this morning, as I've prayed about this quite a bit, is that I'd like to set this passage before us in such a way that God would use this portion of his word to stir up within us gospel motivations for seeking God our Father in prayer. So that prayer is not something that we're doing because we feel like we have to do it, but something that we are going to do because it's such a privilege to do, and I can't help but want to do it. Makes all the difference in the world. See, the gospel extends to us one of the greatest invitations 
In all the scriptures, it's found in this text. I just want to read, beginning in verse 14, but the, I'm going to highlight verse 16, obviously, our memory verse. Since then, we have a, since then, we have a high priest, have a great high priest, verse 14, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. I'm going to suggest to you that in this passage of Scripture, there is so much encouragement for our souls, so much encouragement for us to feed uh, our hearts on today, that we find at least here two gospel incentives for believers to seek God in prayer. Here's the first one. In answer to the question, why pray, we know that in the gospel, Jesus Christ provides confident access to God for every believer. Now, what's the background of this text? Well, we as humans, if you read the beginning chapters of the Bible, we know that we are created different than all the other forms of life that have been created because humans are made in the image of their creator. And as such, we are blessed with the privilege of knowing God who has made us and delighting in the God who has made us. But it don't, you know that if you've read very far into the early beginnings of the Bible, the scripture of God's redemption, you know that one of the consequences of our rebellion against our Creator is that our sins separate us from God. And one of the verses that I would just give to you to meditate on, perhaps at another time, is this. Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And that theme is played out so many times and in so many symbolic ways in the pages of Scripture. It is one of the key themes that you cannot escape in the pages of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Under the Old Covenant, God established various types and symbols to portray this separation between a holy God and a sinful people. And therefore, God prescribed to those people a pattern that those who come to him must come to him on his terms. And that those terms include this, that a high priest was designated to act on their behalf and that this high priest would come and he would offer an atoning sacrifice, not only for his own sins, but also representing all the sins of those among the people that he represented, and he would come and he would bring this offering unto this holy God, and he would make his way into a place that represented where this holy God would dwell in his presence, and would show forth symbolically that the only way to approach God is through someone paying for that sin. Therefore, there had been a death. And so this high priest would come wearing the particular kinds of garments that set him apart from everyone else, and he is representing the people. And he only came once a year, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and he would come only after he offered an atoning sacrifice for his own sins. And so he would do that every year, repeatedly. 
Now, fast forward ahead and you get to the gospel. You get to the new covenant. And sinners there are provided an unmatched high priest, Jesus Christ. Notice how he's described in this text, verse 14. Jesus, the Son of God. And here I'd like to suggest to you in your notes there on, what number, on A, I want us to think about the person and the work of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus was truly human and truly divine. As a human, he was able to act on our behalf. He could represent us to this holy God. And as God, he was sinless, unlike us. And therefore, he was the only one who was qualified to offer an atoning sacrifice which could satisfy God's just demands. Jesus did not enter into a regular Holy of Holies symbolic building or tent-like structure that was built with human hands to offer this sacrifice. But he, as a transcendent one, if you'll notice verse 14, he passed through the heavens and went to the ultimate temple, that is where God is. Therefore, he's made his way all the way to God. He is not just some symbolic person. He's the one who provides true access to God. He himself is there. He's now interceding for us. We read in other parts of Scripture. If you skip over to chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 24, we read these words. Chapter 9, verse 24. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. That's not a, not a tabernacle, not a temple. A mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So Jesus, his sacrifice did not need to be repeated. What he did, he did successfully and did it one time. Verse 14 of chapter 10, Hebrews For by one offering, Hebrews 10, 14, by one offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. In other words, the sinless one died in the place of sinners in order to bring those sinners into right relationship with this holy God. And since the ultimate high priest offered a perfect sacrifice, sinners who repent of their sins, who trust and rely completely upon this high priest, Jesus, to save them, they are granted the gospel promise of unrestricted access to this God they were made and designed to enjoy and to delight in. The barrier, according to the gospel, because of Jesus Christ, has been removed. And because of Jesus' atoning work on behalf of sinners, chapter 10, verse 17 reminds us of Hebrews that God remembers our sins no more. Those are not an issue now that are somehow obstructing our attempts to try to somehow enjoy time in the presence of God. That's not an issue anymore. Because of Christ, sinners saved by grace through faith alone no longer are kept at a distance. God provided a compelling gospel visual aid for us. It's such a beautiful image. Uh, We we read in Mark's gospel that on the day in which Jesus died on that cross, as he himself, as that 
great high priest offered himself as the sacrifice, on that day we read in scriptures that the veil of the temple, Mark 15, the veil of the temple that was in place separating sinful people from the symbolic presence of the holy God, the veil was torn, the scriptures say, from the top all the way to the bottom, ripped apart. Now he's not making a statement about the imperfect qualities of some sort of textile you know, work and somebody didn't just sew, their, sew it very well together and, and somehow you know, the tension on the thing. No, this is a, a gospel portrait. It's a picture for us to see. It's ripped by God who says, come on in to those who have this high priest as theirs. Come on in. Come on into the Holy of Holies. Sinners saved by grace are now welcomed into the presence of God on the basis of Jesus' person and work. And Jesus has supplied access to all sinners who are united to him by faith. Now the gospel insists that Christians have what one author has described, and this is what is talked about in this text here in verse 16. Christians have what we call unhesitating boldness unhesitating boldness to draw near to god through jesus the son of god and i've got a couple quotes here i want to share with you that i've gleaned again from the helpful writings of jerry bridges in his book transforming grace he writes this all believers not just some not just the elite not just the people who who really seem to have gotten their act together and matured on in the christian life all believers may enter the most holy place in heaven at all times through the blood of Jesus, which was shed once for all. Not only may we enter, we are encouraged to enter, to come into the very presence of God and to come with confidence because we come by the blood of Jesus. Unquote. Now, for some of us, we need to hang on to that because the accuser of our souls tries to convince us that we have no business coming into the presence of God. He loves to put a magnifying lens on our sins and our failings and our foolish ways of thinking, and he loves to just highlight those things and say, you have no business going in there talking to the God who paid such penalty for your sins. And Satan, my friend, I want you to hear this. His accusations along those lines have no validity because of Christ to every true believer. Because of the great high priest, we enjoy right now free and open access to God without guilt, without shame, and without any kind of embarrassment to come into his presence. There's no reason that you should not feel perfectly welcome to come in the throne room of God. I'm also aware, as I've thought about this and meditated on this text of Scripture, that we can say that, yes, I am blessed to be thoroughly cleansed, I'm forgiven of sin's penalty, I've affirmed that. But some of us may be rather tentative in our approach to God, and we're still sort of standing in the background, not going into the throne room of God, 
because we assume that Jesus as our high priest, as awesome and as great as he is, he must be too remote. He's too distant from me. He's too elevated to understand my struggles. He is too lofty for me to relate to someone like that because I'm still battling with sin. Maybe you have that kind of thought in your mind. You say, well, I can't talk. I don't know how to talk to God because I'm still, my heart is going 20 directions here and they're all away from God at times. But I say to you, my friends, since Jesus is transcendent and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, it is true, he is high and lifted up. But we must never assume that he would not understand our struggles that he would not understand our testings and our temptations. I think some of us probably think about prayer similar to the idea of having a conversation with Prince Charles, who is the soon to be the King of England. Uh, His mother has currently been on the throne for forever. I don't know how long she's been there. It's since the 50s, I think. He's been waiting, waiting, waiting. But he was born into the Windsor family. He didn't ask to be born there. He just was born into this family, and the family is worth, I didn't look it up, but let's just estimate, billion dollars maybe. They have like, what, 10 palaces and 20 houses all over the place. And, you know, they've got untold amounts of treasure and wealth and assets. He's born into the family. Now, suppose you have a conversation. For some reason, you get stuck in a corner talking to Prince Charles. And you say to him, Hey, man, I don't know if you understand what I'm going through, but I just lost my job. And I don't know how I'm going to pay my mortgage payment or the rent for next month. He'd look at you like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I can't even identify with that. He's never had any kind of struggles financially. And some of us, I think, perhaps, perhaps, because of the elevated greatness and glory of our Savior Jesus Christ, some of us hesitate to approach His throne even though we have permission to do so. But I'm here today to tell you that the gospel comforts us by insisting that Jesus Christ sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He sympathizes with those of us who are struggling to resist sin who understand the the battles going on inside of our hearts. Look at verse 15. Jesus has been tempted in all things as we are. And therefore, and he says this in a double negative. You know, double negative, you've got to understand, means a positive, right? He says, since we have, uh, it says that, uh, we, have a high, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, if you have two negatives, it means you have a positive, right? It means we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, right? You understand that's what it's saying. And therefore, he's emphasizing Jesus, not only in his person and what he has accomplished for us in his work of, of redemption, but also here now in letter B, we have an unmatched high priest and he has the understanding of the Jesus, the Son of God. There is a sympathetic aspect of him that is tremendously helpful in our prayer life. See, Jesus is not aloof. 
He is not insulated from what you and I go through in the struggles and challenges of everyday life. He is not so highly elevated and distant from us because he what? He came and he walked among us. He, his whole life was dealing with trials, temptations, sufferings, and struggles. Jesus experienced weakness as we do. He shared in the entire spectrum of testings and trials known to humankind. And he experienced temptation to the maximum level one can experience those things, and yet he never yielded to the temptation like we often do. See, we usually go up to about this amount of resistance and then boom, you know. I say every Monday morning, I'm going to start doing away with sweets and I'm going to stop eating all this food. I'm going to lose some weight, right? Monday morning, it gets to about 1 o'clock. I've already blown that one. Forget it. Right? Can you identify with that? Here is Jesus. He's, he's str- the, the temptation to, to compromise is great, but he never yields to it. We yield to it way down here. And because Jesus took on flesh and lived in this world, Jesus, therefore, is able to identify with our feelings, our problems, and our struggles. And when we pray, we are coming to our God who understands and who sympathizes with us in our struggles. Jesus sympathizing does not mean, and this you need to hear me now, we use that word a lot of different ways, sympathizing does not mean that Jesus just feels sorry for you. Right? Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, we don't want to hear that. That's not going to be helpful for me. Sympathizing means that he shares in our struggles and feelings. Again, here's a quote in your notes. Jerry Bridges. We can be sure, whatever the nature of our hurts, they are not new to Jesus. Because Jesus sympathizes with us, we can approach God's throne with confidence without being ashamed to lay our weaknesses before Him. He understands and He cares. That's huge. That's huge. Most people who worship idols and false gods have no sense that those gods can identify with their struggles and their problems and their trials. It is Jesus Christ who welcomes us, who understands, and who gives us access. Just real quickly, let me tell a quick story. I hope I get my facts straight here, but years ago we went through Sagamore Hill, the home of Teddy Roosevelt. I don't know if you've ever been there. You need to go there. It's an awesome place. It's a fascinating place. Took our kids there several times with out-of-town family and friends. And in one of the tours, as you know, it, the, the house itself functioned as a summer White House. So <laughs> imagine this. You know, uh, Roosevelt had like six kids, I think, seven maybe. And uh, so, and, and he, they were just like him. He was a wild and crazy guy. He just, he would do all kinds of physically active things, impulsively, whatever. And so his kids were running amok in this house. And he was entertaining significant diplomats and people of great importance in this house as the Summer White House. And so here comes the Prime Minister of Japan, I think I heard the story. And he's talking to him in this official meeting room of the house there. And next thing you know, the kid comes in and he's got, you know, he brings in his, his dog, who's, and he's got a, a snake in his hand, and he's like freaking this guy out, who's prime minister from Japan. 
And here is Teddy Roosevelt speaking to his son. Well, son, I see that. That's great. Okay. I'll get back to you in just a minute here. He spends time talking to his son, acknowledging his son exists at that moment when he's in the presence of somebody super important. And that, my friend, is just a little smidgen of the kind of image that we ought to have when we think about coming into the presence of God. Yes, he is awesome and mighty. Yes, but he is a sympathetic God who says, come on in and tell me what you're struggling with. I can understand what you're dealing with. That's a gospel incentive to pray, my friend. He truly can be our friend. As we talked about in the first hour in Sunday school. Well, time is moving on. I have to move to the second one here. I want us to think now, secondly, as we've seen in the gospel, God has provided all that's necessary for us to gain access. He's removed all the barriers that stood between us and God. He's even entered into our weaknesses so that he understands us. And here's another incentive to pray. And this is found only in the gospel, my friend. And that's why it's so critical that we hang on to these truths about the gospel. God promises to help all his children who seek him in prayer. It's one thing to have someone who will just listen to you as you pour your heart out to them. That's a good thing. That's very Actually, it's quite, in today's world, that's really an incredible gift you give to someone to really understand and listen to them. But I want us to notice here that in the gospel, it depicts prayer as Jesus ushering his children into the throne room of the King of Kings. And then the writer of Hebrews emphasizes that because of the gospel, God awaits for his children to come there, to be in his presence, not as a king who's sitting on a throne that is ready to throw out Uh, uh, areas of, of discipline and correction and judgment and wrath and justice upon them. But he comes, he's a God who awaits his children to come seated on a throne of grace, which is a symbolic way of saying we're coming to a gracious king who's in control of everything and sovereign, but he is full of grace. He's forgiving, he's welcoming. And so as we draw near to God in prayer, we must never lose sight that we draw near to, in the words of 1 Peter 5, the God of all grace. The God of all grace is the one that we're coming to. He is the God who delights to generously, freely, and liberally assist and help and lavish gifts upon His children. That's the kind of God He is in the gospel through Jesus Christ. So that in the gospel, God does not deal with us as we deserve. He deals with us on the basis of his undeserved favor. And he deals with us in accordance, as he says in Ephesians Ephesians 1, on the basis of his kind intention of his will. He just chooses to say, listen, don't worry about that. I got you covered. I've paid that debt. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. In the gospel... God longs to be gracious to sinners like you and me. In the gospel, our Heavenly Father is for us. He's not against us, Romans 8. And He promises, Hebrews 13, never to leave us and never to forsake us. He promises in the gospel that His people, He says to them, the Lord your God is the one who goes with you and He will not fail you nor forsake you. What a promise. 
What a promise. God will not abandon His people. He will not forsake His inheritance, Psalm 94. He is the one who responded to His unfaithful people, Israel, with promises like this. Listen to this promise He gave to Israel. If you ever read the story of the Old Covenant and all of the failings of the people of God in Israel, He says this to them, Jeremiah 32, I will rejoice to do you good. I'm not doing you good because I begrudgingly feel like, well, I feel sorry for you. No, I'm enjoying doing you good. I delight in it. God delights in giving undeserved gifts to those who have nothing to offer in return. And the gospel invites and actually compels us to draw near to this God of all grace. And those who draw near through Jesus Christ will not be ignored. We're not going to be sort of uh, overlooked and said, well, just stand over here on the side here. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we can be confident that we will be helped. That's what the text says, isn't it? Verse 14, verse 16, I'm sorry. God will give because God is a God of mercy too. So letter B in the gospel, we draw near to the Father of mercies. I found it very helpful to come across this definition of mercy. It's in your notes. Louis Burkhoff says, the goodness, God's mercy is his goodness and his love shown to those who are in misery and in distress, irrespective of their deserts. Do you find yourself in distress? Do you find yourself in misery at times? Do you know that those are the kind of people that God welcomes to come to him through Christ? When we find ourselves hurt by the failings of others, when we find ourselves rejected by others, when we find ourselves suffering with unrelenting, ceaseless, physical pain, when we find ourselves having lost a loved one, or someone that we care about deeply. Or we find ourselves in the pain of a broken relationship. May I say to you, my friends, that Jesus' heart overflows with pity and tender love toward you as His child. When you walk into His presence, that is His response toward you. Jesus doesn't ignore your problem. As a matter of fact, distressed and distraught children of God find what? We find mercy. We find mercy when we draw near to God. Do you believe that? I'm convinced if we truly believe it, we're much more likely to pray about anything and everything. There's more in this text. The gospel also reminds us that God grants grace to those who draw near to him. He provides divine enablements. That's what I like to think of as grace. Put it a little more of a way I can get my handle on it. It's divine enablement through His Spirit who indwells in every believer so that God enables us to cope with whatever adversity we find, whatever trial, whatever dilemma we're facing. He gives strength to us and hope. He gives calmness of heart and joy. Even the assurance that in every situation it's working together for good to make us more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And so what was the response that Jesus gave the Apostle Paul? Here he is in great distress. He's pleading with God, please take this difficulty out of my life. I'm going to pray about it three times. I'm seeking you to do this. A severe trial. 
And, and, and Paul's just saying, just take it away, give me relief. And what did Jesus say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. And then talks about the idea of weakness is where his strength is going to show up. When you're feeling weak, that's where he's going to give you help. May I suggest a verse that might help you this week as we meditate on what it means to draw near to God in prayer. James 4, page 1437. James 4, a wonderful verse reminding us of God's gracious nature toward those who approach him with humility. James 4, verses 6 through 8. God is opposed to the proud. And may I suggest to you that one of the worst expressions of pride is prayerlessness? As if we don't need God, as if we are self-sufficient, as we can handle things and we just sort of live life on our own. God is opposed to the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. And then he says, watch this, draw near to God, therefore, and he will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. He's not going to ignore you. He's going to draw near to you in the gospel. So I ask the question, what help do you need from God today? What concern is weighing upon your soul and your mind and heart? Does your heart need cleansing from sin? Does your past and the guilt of your past, is it haunting you and keeping you away from enjoying God? Then I say to you, my friends, through the gospel, I say, draw near to God. Draw near to God through Christ. Has your soul become apathetic? Like you don't even care. I don't, I don't even have any desires to do anything anymore for Christ. Has your soul become apathetic? Do you need a renewed hunger for God? Draw near to God. He'll help you. Are you afraid? Are you fearing the future? Are you fearing failure that may loom in, your, in the days ahead? Draw near to God. Are you lonely? Are you longing for companionship and understanding? draw near to God. We have a high priest who understands and sympathizes. Are you overwhelmed and are you running on empty? Draw near to God. Are you struggling with some form of addiction? Do you find your life enslaved and out of control? Are you longing to see a change in your heart and your whole life? Draw near to God. Are you tempted and tried? Are you made once again aware of your weaknesses and your vulnerability as a Christian? Draw near to God. Are you in need of a new life and say, I need the gift of eternal life. I know that I stand before a holy God and I have no covering for my sin. You draw near to God, my friend, through Jesus Christ. And do so confidently. Do so with full assurance, with full, without any reservation, without any embarrassment. And claim the promise of Hebrews 4.16. And I'm closing now with this one thought. Our dear, wonderful pastor, Charles Spurgeon, meditated on this verse, 4.16 of Hebrews. He says this, Shall we come to God in prayer with stunted requests and with a narrow, contracted faith? No, he says, For it does not 
become a king to be giving away pennies. I like that. You're coming to the king. You think he's just going to say, well, okay, here's a couple pennies for you. That's all I can spare right now. It does not become a king to be giving away pennies. Our God distributes pieces of broad gold. Oh, that always we felt this way when we came before the throne of grace. That God would do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. My question to you is, Are you willing to say, Lord, I want to draw near to you? My intention is to draw near to you, God. I want to enjoy the blessings and privileges of the gospel that Jesus Christ has provided to me. So that in Hebrews chapter 10, we read these words. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Father, how we thank you. How we thank you that we are not coming to a God who is so separated from us that we have no hope of ever enjoying you and knowing you and delighting in you and finding satisfaction in you. How we thank you for the gospel. How we thank you for Jesus Christ, our awesome and great high priest, who an unmatched who did everything necessary to break down those barriers so that we might have free and ongoing access to you, might come confidently to you. Oh, Father, I pray that you would draw the hearts of all who are here today. Draw us to you today, Lord. I pray that we may find delight in your presence. I pray, Lord, that we might find you giving us grace and mercy in ways that we've never seen before. That we would begin to understand anew and afresh of the wonders of your grace shown to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, there are some who are here today and they are in desperate need for you to intervene. They need you in ways that they can't even express. Lord, I pray they would draw near to you today through the gospel and through Christ. For others of us, Lord, who've just been going on in life and ignoring you and doing things in our own strength and never really drawing close to you, Lord, I pray that we would put aside all these things that distract us and that we would truly draw near to you with full confidence and find that grace and mercy that we are definitely in need of. Lord, I pray that we might be a people who draw near to you. By your Spirit, would you draw us to yourself We pray in Christ's name. Amen.